What was the experience like being back in a movie theater? Well, you can talk about that because I watched it on HBO Max, so I just watched it in my living room. Which I think was a huge mistake. If you're gonna watch it in the Heights, you have to watch it on the big screen. It was great. We went up to Musick and there's loads of space. I didn't feel in any way sort of like people were on top of me or the, that I should worry about the pandemic. And it was, it was great. Like the smell of popcorn, it was glorious. Alan Austin and Patrick Hamilton are colleagues at Misericordia University in Dallas, Pennsylvania, just outside Wilkes-Barre. Each one is a movie buff, and they couldn't wait to see the new movie, In the Heights, that grew out of the Tony Award-winning Broadway musical by Lin-Manuel Miranda and Chiara Alegria Hudis. So, we've just begun our conversation about the film, considering one level of the notion of space. Alan was able to experience In the Heights with lots of space in the theater. So he wasn't distracted, he felt quite safe, and he had room to breathe. And there just happens to be a song in this film titled Breathe, and in a sense it's about space, about the way the character Nina was able to put lots of space between herself and her old neighborhood, Washington Heights, her home, where, as a child, she used to climb to the highest place to scan the horizon and from the fire escape, perhaps plan her escape across the entire country. But now she's back, back home. And Stanford University on the West Coast is not just thousands of miles from the heights geographically, as we'll learn. Of course, there's the map itself, speaking of space. In a conversation with Chris Stanton of Vulture, Nelson Coates, the production designer of the film, speaks about opening up the movie. Ironically, if you look actually at the musical's stage sets, they look nothing like what the movie looks like. There's a feeling, though, so the feeling is important. Since we had the opportunity to do this cinematically and add scale and scope, it was really about how we expand without making it suffocate, being claustrophobic like it would be on a 45-foot proscenium stage. And then Stanton asks, one of the central design elements of Usnavi's bodega is the map of the Dominican Republic that's on the wall, which to me scanned as a literalization of the themes of heritage and his pursuing his dream of returning to the Dominican Republic. How do you translate those overarching themes into a physical space? And Coates replies, Part of that was in the discovery as we found things. But one of the central things that John Chu, the director, brought up was, you know, Americans are geographically challenged. And if there's some way that we can help people know where the Dominican Republic is, it's going to help solidify, oh, here's what's going on. John wanted something in the bodega to be the constant dream, not only the pictures that Usnavi has on the walls of his bedroom, but something that's in the business. John wanted evidence of the flags, Dominican, Cuban, and Puerto Rican flags. He really wanted to show the characters' backgrounds. So this map was very much that. It's the pride and ethnicity and the heart. The movie takes place in New York, in the Heights, but it's a map of where they came from 
and shows the pull that Yusnavi has to go back home. Words of Nelson Coates, production designer and Andrew Baseman, set decorator, with New York Magazine's Chris Stanton. And really, Patrick Hamilton might just describe what we heard there as creation of a story world. That is, the world or the universe of the narrative or the tale being told. Dr. Hamilton has in fact written about the notion in his study of space and mind, cognitive mappings of contemporary Chicano Chicana fiction published by the University of Texas Press. He tells us he's interested in what novels and short stories by these writers ask us to think. How do the worlds they imagine act upon our minds? And this questioning can be extended to other forms, like films, comics, television programs, and other forms of popular culture for Dr. Hamilton and Dr. Austin. They've co-authored a study titled All New, All Different, A History of Race and the American Superhero, where they bring their shared interests and specialties to helping their students and the rest of us wrestle with the stories being told all around us. Patrick Hamilton is professor of English and Alan Austin, professor of history and government at Misericordia University. And we had a chance to talk with them about In the Heights and the kind of conversations they believe we can and should have with works of art and popular culture. Dr. Hamilton. My first book that I wrote was on Chicano literature and kind of representations of space and how they make us think about Chicanos within the U.S. And like everything that's coming back from the film is, is that. Like all I was like, this is, this is my book kind of up on screen again with, with more singing and dancing than my book. But this is the kind of stuff that I talk about. And Alan, you have immigration. Right, beyond just tagging along with Patrick because I could. (laughs) I was trained as an immigration historian. And so to me, the musical, the movie, and really Lin-Manuel Miranda's biography all speak very much to the kind of work that I've done as well. And just overall impressions of the film as a film. Oh, as a film, I enjoyed the heck out of it. It's it's a really enjoyable film and musical and kind of spectacle is the word that I always kind of keep coming back to with it, is that it really works on that level. Which is why you had to see it on the big screen. To see it on the big screen and to see the choreography, it's Busby Berkeley-esque kind of stuff. Yeah, It's like classic Hollywood, the scene in the pool where they're dancing in the pool, just so as classic sort of golden age Hollywood kind of stuff that it was just, it was great to see on the screen. The film has this tremendous entertainment value, for sure. It's also provoked a lot of criticism and discussion that maybe ought to remind us that when we talk about films, like it, it's such a richer conversation than, than we might have just by saying, like, we both loved it or, you know, we were bored, that that it was it was a beautiful and exciting and spectacular film to watch. And it also raised some really profound issues that we need to continue talking about as Americans. The most discussion that I've heard about it, having not seen it, was the casting mm-hmm. issue. Absolutely. I think one of the things that stood out to me in the movie is that there's a there's a line that the movie goes back to again and again from the Abuela character who talks about how as a uh, Latinx person that, that the quote is, we had to assert our dignity in small ways, little details that tell the world we are not invisible. 
And that idea of visibility and invisibility seemed to me to be both what the film succeeded at, but also where the limitations and the criticisms of the film fall as well. And so it's kind of this aspect of the film that the film itself directly engages with, sort of this idea of, of Latinx visibility. But there are limits to, as, as you were just alluding to, to who exactly it makes visible and how certain persons or certain bodies are visible in other ways that some are not. So in the aftermath of the controversy, Lin-Manuel Miranda issued an apology uh, of sorts via social media. And he began by saying, I started writing in the Heights because I didn't feel seen. So the project was undertaken in many ways as a project of making oneself visible. And yet in the making of, we understand better the complexities of the visibility and the invisibility. And, you know, as he says later in that same apology, I can hear the hurt and frustration over colorism, over feeling unseen. And I think there's this really profound truth about the immigrant experience in that, that it's not a monolithic experience, that it's not the same experience isn't shared by every immigrant. And thinking about sort of those differences in the way in which race, ethnicity, color matter is really worth thinking about. Was it a struggle to get this film made or had he been such a smash as a result of Hamilton that he could do anything? That, that's an interesting question. I've had some conversations with friends online kind of right around that idea of on the one hand, people kind of hoping for more from Lin-Manuel Miranda and sort of, you know, shouldn't the guy who did Hamilton be able to, like you just said, do whatever he wants. And yet Lin-Manuel Miranda may be big on Broadway. That doesn't necessarily make him big in Hollywood and, and able to push back against kind of the Hollywood machine as much as he may have wanted to. I think for me in the film, while I understand the way in which that Lin-Manuel may have faced pressure from, you know, the Hollywood machine and, and producers and stuff to to make the film the way it was made, I wish the film itself manifested more pushback against that than it does. I think, if I if I could, as, as I've read interviews with Anthony Ramos and Lin-Manuel Miranda and sort of the, the creative forces behind this, part of it also was an unconsciousness. Uh, just not being fully aware of that it's it's easier in the human experience to be a, aware of my invisibility than to understand the invisibility of everybody else. And uh, growing up in a culture that that has this colorism built into it, it's not entirely surprising, I think, that you could kind of back into a situation like this having just not thought about it. I think part of the criticism that, that comes out of that is these same criticisms were made about the Broadway version of the play. These same criticisms were made about Crazy Rich Asians that has the same director, that the color is... So they, you know, and, and actually I found, a, I was looking at stuff today, there's a quote from the director of Crazy Rich Asians basically saying against the charges of colorism, yeah, I should have done more, I should have done things differently. And then to have the same kind of thing happen yet again, I, I think that feeds into the criticism quite a lot too. This isn't the first time they've run into this problem and you're kind of you're kind of hoping for more and we're not yet seeing it on the screen. I wonder if it's in part though, because it's hard to talk across ethnic and racial categorizations in this country. So when Patrick and I teach a class together on race and graphic narrative, we teach the scholarship of David Hollinger, who writes about what he calls the ethno-racial pentagon. And it's the idea that there is this 
imposed understanding. Think about the government forms we filled out our whole lives and you check those boxes, you fall into one of five categories, right? You're white, you're African-American, Native American, Asian American, Latino. So like this, these are sort of the options we're given. And I think in many ways, we have so absorbed that into the way we just assume the world works that we that we think of that sort of making crazy rich Asians is totally different from making in the heights. But is the immigration story what I want to scream up the rooftops is, but there it is, right? It's that shared experience across groups and understanding that commonality is a really powerful way to start addressing inequalities and blind spots in society today. Well, and again, one of the biggest blind spots of the, of the structure you just talked about is mixed race persons. That, Absolutely. That, they're, they're, yeah. you know, that, they're, that was the issue we saw with Obama when everyone sort of talked about him as the first black president. But he, he could have been the first mixed race president. We didn't really see that dialogue about him. And in a lot of ways, the conversations that we tend to have about race and ethnicity tend to reflect that rigidity between the different categories you just raised and, and not really leave a place for the complexity that you were talking about. So somebody stepping into In the Heights might say to themselves, well, I'm making a movie about Latinos, not African-Americans, and there's not a lot of space culturally sometimes for them to cross. And so it's tragic, but not completely unsurprising that In the Heights struggles with casting certain kinds of, of Latinos at the benefit of other kinds of Latinos. What about the question of the American dream? Yeah, as, as an immigration historian, many of the classes I teach are kind of hooked around the American dream. What is it? What does it mean? I loved that In the Heights was trying to wrestle with it and demonstrate different kinds of dreams and different paths to dreams. But the way in which it seeks to kind of resolve those dreams probably suggests to me the limits on that dream, that the dream is perhaps more a romantic notion than it is a reality, especially for people in certain socioeconomic and ethno-racial groups. Yeah, well, I know one of the things we had talked about was kind of the narrative of the return migration, mm -hmm. that that was something you had brought up, was sort of Znavi's desire to go back to the Dominican Republic. Which again, kind of of the idea that that he's not finding success in America, and so has to, and you know his dream is to go back to the Dominican Republic, very much goes against that American dream idea, and sort of speaks to the idea that that the success that he's looking for isn't to be found here, and that was something that I I liked the way the film seemed to be kind of pushing back against that, but then as Alan just said, it ultimately resolves in a way that seems to reinforce that that American dream sort of ideal. Because one of the things we never want to talk about in American history is return migration, because that's not part of the story we tell ourselves of, of who we are. People come to America because it offers so much more opportunity, and thus, if that's our story, who would ever leave it? But it turns out different groups remigrate at different levels, but historically, Remigration is a, is a really important part of immigration history that we never talk or think about in this country. So I was I love that Usnavi was kind of was presenting it. it. I felt a little let down, I would say, at the end when there's this kind of pat resolution that allows him to stay. And it turns out, oh, his American dream, it, it was here all along. It, it, it was going to come true. Though the end is kind of weird in that there's there's the jump forward yeah. at least a certain number of years because it was Navi and Vanessa have a daughter at that point that's like eight, nine, ten-ish. 
But I'd say I don't really, I don't know at the end of the film, like, what is their situation? They're still in the bodega that he owns, but she's got her fashion line in there, but also all the windows are sort of covered up. I don't understand what their situation is. And so the, the ending is really nebulous to me in terms of, are they actually achieving their dream now, or is it still kind of suspended? Especially because the movie kind of suggests that the neighborhood is changing that the the community that's there is being pushed out and, and moved along. And so that Usnavi is still there is a really interesting thing a decade later. But as Patrick says, there's no context to it. What does that neighborhood look like? What does this community look like? We don't really know. And that was one of the things that Patrick, I know, wanted to talk about a little bit, was the way in which Washington Heights is kind of disconnected as a community in the film. Yeah, and that, that was something that I talked about in as I mentioned earlier in my first book, was sort of this idea of kind of space and the way in which that that on the one hand, and again, this, this is kind of the, the double-edged sword of the film, is that it presents a very sort of vibrant and energetic and lively Washington Heights uh, Latino community throughout the film, and yet it's so very separate from the rest of the world around it. It's, it's almost like this little enclave that when people leave it to go to college or the character of Daniela who runs a salon in Washington Heights and then moves to a a different location in a nicer neighborhood, the film kind of describes them as completely gone. Like they, they disappear when you're not in Washington Heights, you are gone from the story of the film and, and from that neighborhood. And so there's this weird disconnect of, of Washington Heights from everything else around it you know and and as i talked about in my first book there's a way in which that that i worry that makes us think of latinx peoples and communities as wholly separate and kind of odd within the u.s that they're not part of it there's this there's this little sort of of section that they're in that's wholly separate from the rest of the united states and and it's one of the one of the things i worry about the way in which this film and other works of literature sort of encourage us to think of them as both here and not here. Patrick, what's an example of another piece of literature that might do something like that? The example I use is, is Rudolfo Anaya's Bless Me Ultima, which is, is one of the best-known Chicano novels, and the way in which all of the Chicano characters live in their environment, and then there's a bridge linking them to the larger town. And so they are, they are wholly separate. And then and, and they're they're sort of described as almost different in nature as well. And there's all the ways that the novel sets up very stark differences between the Chicano area and the non-Chicano area that makes them seem very, very separate. And so that that's the example that I always go to. And it's a message that runs through a lot of pop mm-hmm. culture. So we would teach you have to remind the, the title of the specific story. Stories. An American in Palomar. It's the story of a white photographer who comes to the the Latinx community. Mm-hmm. And his experience there is that of kind of a, how would you describe it, like a visitor at a zoo? Like he's, yeah. an, he's an observer from the outside who is kind of enjoying the exotic nature of what he's observing, but will always ultimately leave after exploiting mm-hmm. the locals for sort of his own gain. Yeah, and, and it's interesting you bring that because in a way, the film does something very similar in terms of the very sort of vibrant, that, like you were talking about, the spectacle of it on screen, that there is, like, we as audiences get to kind of dabble in it a little bit, and then we go. 
And I think the spectacle of the big musical, which I somewhat shamefully praised at the beginning, is potentially problematic in that way. In so enjoying the spectacle, it becomes just the spectacle, and the spectacle allows us to imagine that we've experienced something that maybe we haven't really experienced in that in that theater-going moment. Yeah, the other, the other metaphor that this relates to is scholar Stacey Alimo compares kind of multiculturalism to the It's a Small World ride at Disneyland where, you know, the white rider is in the car driving through the world of ethnicity and they're all there in their little ethnic costumes and doing their little ethnic dances, but they're completely separate and you pass through and then you're you're out of there. It's, it's kind of the same thing that there's ways in which, again, the, the spectacle of the film is really effective, but also in some ways problematic. And that's the thing. It's the way it cuts both ways. Mm-hmm. The spectacle can draw people in and it can bring people to the movie theater who haven't been to Washington Heights, who haven't experienced the culture, who don't know the music. The food plays such an important role in this film as well. It is a way of providing entree of sorts, but it's a dangerous kind when we assume that just experiencing that representation is sufficient to change our understanding of cultures that we don't know a lot right. about. And going back to your original question about the casting, the thing that's interesting is is thinking about the criticism that the film focuses on lighter-skinned Latinos versus darker-skinned. Darker-skinned Latinos are part of the spectacle. Like, they're there in the dance numbers. They're just not part of the narrative. They're not part of the story. And, th- and that's the problem, is that they're, they're there to be part of the show, but not part of the experience, what gets represented as the, the life. And so when you celebrate the culture, but not the people who have created it, that's where it starts to feel dangerous and problematic. When you talk about the spectacle in Busby Berkeley, is there some sense that telling this story in golden Hollywood terms, they're obviously aware of the illusion and what they're creating and the illusion that they're creating. What were we thinking about when we were watching Busby Berkeley and those things? What, how do you frame a story like this compared to what was going on with those films yeah. from those days? So I love Great Depression era films. So I just, I, and so if you want to talk about Gold Diggers of 1933, for example, I'd be, I would love to do that and I would do it for much longer than I should. But I think that that's kind of maybe a, a good way to think about it. When you think about the Gold Diggers series, which were all big musical numbers that came at the worst years of the Great Depression, there was a kind of escapism in that. There was this idea, that rags to riches myth, that American dream, that, that Busby Berkeley was kind of keeping it alive. And, and in imagining that during the Great Depression, it blunts the ability or the likelihood of real reform to the system to help people who need help in, in the 30s. And I wonder if that's not a, a lesson worth thinking about when we think about In the Heights, too, that the spectacle, again, is a way of allowing us an escape from harder conversations about race. That's kind of what our book, All New, All Different, is about in some ways, is that comics seem to be escaping, but they ought to be pushing us back to hard conversations. And I think it's to the creator's credit that they've been willing to engage these conversations afterwards. I mean, Lin-Manuel Miranda has not said, well, this is that's ridiculous. You can't accuse me of this. Like, he's, he's sat down and he's really thought about it, which of course has meant that people from the right have criticized him for, for kowtowing in any way to this, this kind of criticism. But it's exactly these kind of conversations that we need to be having as Americans if we really want to sort through this. The movie in that way is a great entry point. But if we imagine In the Heights as the conclusion, that's when I think 
we've got problems. Yeah. Well, and I think along the same lines, you know, there's something about putting the film in kind of that very recognizable sort of the Busby Berkeley musical and sort of that, as you said, kind of the entryway in. And I think the issue is that it would be nice if the film had used that as an entryway in to in some ways get us to a more critical or or, or um, to get us to think about kind of race differently. And I don't think ultimately, I don't know that the film does. It, it, like it, yeah. it would have been nice if it had been a little bit more subversive in its use of the musical to kind of get us in there and then to really make us think about things. But it's a film that that in a lot of ways sort of always to me stopped short of that. The the example from the film that jumps out to me is that it brings up the dreamers. There's a character who is a, a dreamer in it. There's a moment where at the beginning of the film, he talks about that there's going to be a rally in support of dreamers later on. And I was like, okay, this is good. I'm like, this is interesting. Like I, I was kind of expecting there's going to be some drama around this idea. Like maybe something's going to happen. And I, I thought it was going to really interrogate this idea. And ultimately it just boils down to that one dreamer story and his own pursuit of citizenship within the U.S. And again, going back to the end, when we jump forward 10 years, he's not there. We don't know what happens with his story. And so it's a way in which that the film invokes this larger issue that it could do more with, and then it just kind of dodges it. But there's a potential ambiguity in there that can, that can be valuable, that we want our movies as escapism to give us pat answers. Sonny is a dreamer. Sonny goes through the legal process. Sonny gets to stay. Then we kind of leave the... Like, to me, that's no better an answer than the ambiguity that Patrick's complaining about because one is a dodge and... Well, they're both dodges, quite frankly. They're just... One's ignoring it to dodge it. The other is giving us the happy ending we want to have. Well, it's giving us that but American dream version again. Is exactly. That, oh, Sonny made it. But it's, he, he's the only one that, that we know of. Everyone else is just kind of this vague dreamer population so it's like the film wants to invoke and engage those sorts of politics but then ultimately doesn't really engage with them what the film has done is provoked a conversation outside the film that i think is more valuable i think that patrick's right that inside the film it's not a film that has set out to to critique or push back against racial norms and attitudes and dreamers and and all of the the politics that the movie is taking place in and i think it's a it's a fine notion, mm -hmm. and we all should be trying to help the yeah. dreamers, I suppose. But the movie doesn't do so in any concrete way beyond saying dreamers. And maybe mm -hmm. there are people that come to the theater and they don't know about dreamers or they haven't been following what's happened in the last couple of years. And maybe in that way, it, it starts a conversation. But I think, again, as we argue in, in our book, Expecting that movies are going to fix our problems is missing the point, probably. They can help us understand them and they can inspire conversations about them. But In the Heights isn't going to fix all of the problems that systemically exist in this country. It would be nice, I agree with Patrick, if the film worked a little harder to confront the system as opposed to turning it into Nina's dad, essentially lecturing her and saying, you know, you got to buck up and be tougher and get back in the ring. Yeah. Well, and the other thing, too, is is that what the film can do is and and, and what, you know, film and literature and, and whatever, what they can do is challenge the way that we think about these issues to inspire us to take some kind of action. My concern within the Heights is I don't know that it does that enough because so much of its storylines fall into very set patterns of how we already think about issues in terms of like the American dream and, and what have you is that it, it's not it's not doing quite enough to make us really think about 
things differently I, is my fear. I don't disagree with you, but we're sitting here having this conversation right now. The conversation has been all over social media. It's been in the time. Like There is a broad conversation happening. Now, I think you're right. It wasn't entirely intentional that, that the makers of the film didn't sit down and say, hey, let's figure out a way to inspire the conversation. But that's not always how art works. Yeah. And it's it's clearly hit a nerve in the, the culture in which we live. And I want to at least give the film credit and the filmmakers for saying in the aftermath, okay, let's have that conversation. And that that matters. For whatever the shortcomings are, they fall into the traditional tropes. It's a very pat kind of story in a lot of ways. It has inspired a conversation, and that has value. Alan Austin, professor of history and government, and Patrick Hamilton, professor of English at Misericordia University in Dallas, just outside Wilkes-Barre. They have co-authored a study titled All New, All Different, A History of Race and the American Superhero, issued by the University of Texas Press. And Dr. Hamilton has written a study titled Of Space and Mind, Cognitive Mappings of Contemporary Chicano-Chicana Fiction. And they co-teach courses in popular culture at Misericordia, and they produce a regular podcast on popular culture, and you can tell they have a wonderful rapport the podcast is titled Even More Mashed Up, Even More Mashed Up, and you can find it wherever you find your podcasts, mashedup.podbean.com is one way, mashedup.podbean.com, and their study on the history of race and the American superhero, all new, all different, question mark, a history of race and the American superhero where they help their students and readers like us explore the conversations they believe we can and should have with works of art and popular culture. For more information on the two guests today, misericordia.edu, M-I-S-E-R-I-C-O-R-D-I-A, misericordia.edu. I'm jealous I could take all these fellas, whatever. Oh, yeah.